it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, August 19th, 2022. Happy Friday and welcome in to the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Very happy and proud to be here with all of you between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every single weekday. If you can listen live, we encourage that. GuyBensonShow.com for many options. We have great affiliates and expanding radio family. Partners at Odyssey.com, another option there, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. Many ways to listen live. Fox Nation for the live stream. If you can't do any of that or miss part of the show, there's a podcast. It is free. It is on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. I often will share some of my TV appearances on those platforms if you're interested. You can check us out. You can follow us. Here's the lineup today on the radio side. I was busy with TV earlier. Varney in the morning on FBN. America Reports on Fox News Channel this afternoon. Now together at last on the radio. And Andy McCarthy will join us coming up this hour. The latest on the Mar-a-Lago raid. His legal perspective. What does he make of what the judge ordered yesterday? The potential redactions. Maybe releasing part of the affidavit. We will get Andy's take on that upcoming. Trace Gallagher will also be here in our next hour. Trace is anchoring Fox News Sunday this weekend. We'll walk through some of the latest political news with him and get his take. A man named Jason Church making his debut on the show a little bit later on as well in our second hour. He's a veteran. He lost both of his legs in Afghanistan. And he is the leader of a veterans organization that has been really speaking out, I think, effectively and boldly about what happened a year ago in Afghanistan. Jason personally is invested in this, obviously. He poured his time and his blood into that war effort. And then we all remember what happened a year ago, although I think some people would prefer a lot of us forget what happened a year ago. Jason Church is not one of those people, and he will be here. You want to hear that interview. In our final hour, the happy hour, just after 5 p.m. Eastern, I have to tell you, I am so excited for this treat. Janice Dean, our friend, our colleague, senior meteorologist here at Fox News, she'll be joining us, stepping away from her vacation, which we don't like to ask people to do, but this is a special extenuating circumstance. And if it doesn't make you smile, I mean, you might need to check your pulse. It's a very fun, cool, sweet, adorable story. And if you're an animal lover in particular, you're just going to want to circle this one and make it appointment listening. That's at the top of our final hour here today on the program. Let's start with this. I would like to draw to your attention a Twitter thread by the new press secretary for Governor Ron DeSantis down in Florida. So his longtime press secretary, who has made a bit of a name for herself, she is relentless on Twitter, 
particularly going after the media, Christina Pushaw, she resigned from the governor's office and went over to the campaign. So she's still with DeSantis, but part of the campaign arm now. Her replacement as press secretary for the governor in the governor's office is a man named Brian Griffin. And he has made, I think, an immediate splash by illustrating something that really goes to a point that we talk about quite a lot on this show. And sometimes maybe it's overkill, conservatives talking about media bias and the double standards. But I think it's refreshing to see a Republican politician and his team not just whining about the media being biased and not just saying, oh, they're a bunch of liberal Democrats, but specifically bringing receipts and making the point that's really inarguable with concrete examples side by side. And that's what Brian Griffin has done on behalf of Governor DeSantis. And it goes to something that has irked me, and we've talked about it this week, the media celebration around the so-called Inflation Reduction Act that no one's even really calling that you know, by the name anymore. They've kind of given up on that. It's an afterthought. They needed that talking point to get the thing passed. It didn't really fool almost anyone. So then it quickly became the climate change bill once it was over the hurdle. And so what DeSantis's press secretary did was he compared the ABC News coverage because DeSantis just took like a hatchet to CBS News and 60 Minutes. What was that last year with the hack job they attempted against him and he just totally ripped them to shreds again with the evidence, with the receipts. This is now ABC News in the crosshairs of deserved criticism. And Griffin is comparing and juxtaposing the ABC News coverage of Biden signing this so-called Inflation Reduction Act into law versus the way ABC covered Governor DeSantis signing the Parental Rights and Education Bill that critics called Don't Say Gay. And, of course, ABC adopted the moniker of the critics. That's what almost all of the media did, as a matter of fact. So this was all yesterday, and I was impressed. He says, here's a thread, a tale of two bill signings with mainstream media coverage, ABC. Article number one, it was from this week. He says, you start with the title adjective in the headline, major win. Biden signs sweeping health care, climate and tax bill, a major win for his domestic agenda. Number two, the subhead includes the word celebrate. So it's a celebratory subheadline. The White House plans to celebrate the political victory again next month. So major win, celebrate the victory. That's the framing just in the headline, sort of, if you will, above the fold from ABC News. Point three, it uses the real bill name, yet credits the bill for having different objectives. So in the opening paragraphs, the story calls it the Inflation Reduction Act. I think that name is a joke for reasons that we've probably beaten into the ground at this point based on actual data. We like to deal with that here, facts on the show. But the headline calls it a health and climate change bill. So both elements of the Democratic line and the Democratic spin are prominently featured in the ABC coverage. Then... DeSantis's press secretary just 
screen grabs and screen caps a couple of the photographs that accompany their coverage from Getty Images. One is Speaker Pelosi with a giant smile on her face and a bunch of people, House Democrats surrounding her, cheering and smiling and clapping and thumbs up. Then you've got President Biden smiling, handing the pen that he used to sign the bill off to Senator Joe Manchin, who's grateful. Schumer's clapping. Clyburn's clapping. Everyone's happy. Point five, and this is dissecting the ABC News coverage via the new press secretary for Governor DeSantis. The story from ABC quotes three supporters of the bill and no perspectives from critics. And the story ends with six consecutive paragraphs of talking points directly from the White House, uncontested. The White House on Monday put out what it said would be the impact, and they go through literally the White House said, according to the White House, the White House estimates, the White House said, the White House also claims. So the conclusion of the story, after quoting multiple supporters of the bill, none of the critics, they just repeat what the White House says. And as we've explained here, the White House has said things that are wrong about the bill. Quite a few things, actually, majorly wrong. Or at least could be contested or disputed, but that's not really the way that coverage went. And ABC, he also points out, went out of their way to note that Biden interrupted his summer vacation. Very big of him, very kind of him. He's back on vacation. He's going back to the beach tomorrow. Beach, five-hour work week, no interviews, beach. But he came back to Washington for a few hours with all that carbon footprint to sign the climate bill, which is no longer the inflation reduction bill. Unless inflation goes down and then they'll pretend that the bill is what is responsible for it, even though all the experts say it will be negligible at best. So that's Exhibit A. That's ABC News covering this bill signing this week from this president for their party. They being the Democrats and the media, they're all on the same team as we've discussed before. Now, on the other side, Exhibit B, this is DeSantis's press secretary, Brian Griffin, uh, I think making some strong points. It was the so-called don't say gay bill, which was the attack line used by activists that was just swallowed immediately by the media, and that became the effective title of the bill in the public consciousness, even though it was grotesquely misleading. I had problems with the bill. I described them on the show. In fact, I challenged Governor DeSantis directly in a long interview with him, and we talked about my concerns like adults. He was responsive to both of my critiques, and he actually persuaded me on one of them. But the media went straight to the misleading, inaccurate, don't say gay law. That's what they called it. So ABC News, of course, did that. Here's the headline. Right there in the, adge- in, the, in the title, the adjective controversial. Right With Biden, it was political win, White House to celebrate. But in this case, Florida governor signs controversial don't say gay bill into law. The subhead, says Griffin, is painfully obtuse. The bill bans lessons on sexual orientation or gender identity in some grades. Yes, that is technically true. Which grades are those, ABC News? It was K through 3. And if you obscure that, then you might have people be less informed about what the legislation would actually do. And God forbid, if you put it up there front and center, K through three, more people might agree with it. We'll get to some of the public 
opinion data on that here in a second. But right out of the gate, the headline, controversial, they use that word, and then they put in little, you know, like scare quotes, don't say gay. With this, uh, at best, incomplete subhead. And they are primarily, in their coverage, referring to the legislation as a misnomer. In the headline and in the lead, don't say gay. Dubbed the don't say gay bill by critics. Yeah, including you, ABC News, because that's what you're using. You're not using the real name of the bill as you come out of the gate with your coverage. The image, right, the photograph from Getty Images that goes with this story. It's not a bunch of people cheering because they held an event with kids and families and everyone clapping and all that. No, we did not get that. We got sort of this concerned slash angry looking Ron DeSantis making uh, some gesture with his fingers as he talks into a microphone. That's the photograph that they use for him, sort of like a stock image of DeSantis. The story quoted three critics of the bill and three supporters, nine paragraphs devoted to the critics' perspectives. So this was at least more balanced, unlike the other coverage of the Democratic bill, which was totally one-sided. So if you are a very perceptive person, you might be able to detect, if you just squint a little bit, a slight difference in the way these two issues were covered. By the way, it was ABC News doing a national story about a Florida bill, because I think that's part and parcel with the effort to bring down DeSantis and take him out before he became more of a national threat. We've seen that from the entirety of the media now, basically for the duration of his governorship up to this point. Now, what's interesting is, let's take a step back, media bias can only get the Democrats so far. It helps. It's galling. It's frustrating as all hell. However, if you look at polling, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act is about split even in public opinion, approve or disapprove. And a clear, overwhelming majority of Americans in multiple polls do not believe it will do what the misnomer says it would do, the name of the bill, reduce inflation. Only a tiny handful of gullible hacks and partisans are at least willing to tell pollsters that they believe that. So the spin job is out there. It might be working to some extent. You kind of sometimes wonder how the Democrats' numbers would look without the great inflation of the media bias. But even with it, it's pretty middling on this supposedly huge achievement. Whereas the controversial don't say gay bill, which actually doesn't have anything to do with banning, nothing to do with banning the word gay in schools or anywhere in Florida, the controversial bill critics were all mad about. Again, I'm not saying it's perfect legislation. I had my own issues with it, as I mentioned. But when you go to the central question, the controversy, supposedly, in that bill, here's the latest poll from YouGov asking this to the American people. Do you support or oppose school teachers providing classroom instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity to children in kindergarten through third grade? 21% of Americans support that kind of instruction for young children in schools. 21%. One out of five Americans. 67%. An overwhelming supermajority of the public says they oppose it. The media did their very best to turn what DeSantis signed into law into this horrible, 
you know, speech suppressing expression of bigotry. But when you actually dig into the core component of that bill, it is lopsidedly, overwhelmingly popular with the American people. Which might explain why Governor DeSantis, in yet another poll, the second poll out this week about this, DeSantis has an eight-point lead in the governor's race down in Florida. And uh, that would be a very big margin in a state like Florida, despite the concerted, endless efforts of the mainstream media. All right, we are just getting started on this Friday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Keep it here. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The state of Florida is the state, uh, is the place where woke goes to die. Uh, We are not going to let this state... We're not going to let this state descend into some type of woke dumpster fire. We're going to be following common sense. We're going to be following, um, you know, facts. And that's just really, really important. Now, as Governor DeSantis in Phoenix this week, I think that's a sentiment that would appeal to many conservatives in Florida and elsewhere. Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show. Right before the break, I did mention another poll out of Florida And it was weird. I had actually talked about this a few different times. There were no polls of the governor race in Florida for months. On Real Clear Politics, you had to go back to February to find any polling, which, I mean, useless that far back. And you'd think with all the attention that the media gives to DeSantis all the time, we'd get tons of data on that race. Because there are also not just implications for the reelect, but maybe DeSantis's future, that kind of thing. And now, finally, we're starting to get a few more polls. There was one I told you about earlier in the week that had DeSantis up about eight points over his would-be Democratic opponents. They still haven't had the primary out there. This one is from the Chamber of Commerce in Florida. DeSantis, 51, Charlie Crist, 43. And then if he's against Nikki Freed, it's basically the same, 50-43. And in that poll, his approval rating, the governor's approval rating, among Florida Hispanics, 65% approved for the Republican governor of Florida. And if DeSantis wins by mid to high single digits, I know there was one poll that had Marco Rubio losing this week down four. No chance. Rubio would also win a statewide race. And there was another poll that had Rubio up 11 this week. I'll give you a hint which of those two polls MSNBC has been harping and hyping. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Thanks for listening to The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, our online home. The podcast is always free. Joining us now once again is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, 
author of multiple books, bestsellers, including Ball of Collusion. He's at Andrew C. McCarthy on Twitter. And Andy, we've had you a lot recently. You're doing yeoman's work on this whole Mar-a-Lago raid situation, and we're glad to have you back. Thank you so much, Guy. I appreciate that. All right. So I would be very curious to hear your analysis, and I know you've written about this for National Review as well, of what just happened, what was it, yesterday with the judge. You're calling this a surprise turn in the search warrant case. The judge seems open to releasing at least a redacted version of some of the underlying affidavits and information that led to that search warrant. Uh, I was not necessarily expecting that potential outcome. I guess we've got a week or so to wait for the DOJ to go through and figure out what they would like to have redacted. What are your big takeaways here? Well, I was surprised, Guy, and the reason is this is not – a case like uh, FISA surveillance that we became so familiar with during the uh, the Russiagate business. This is a normal criminal investigation. I mean, in some ways, there's nothing normal about it. But what I'm saying is procedurally, it's just a criminal investigation. And the reason I highlight that is it's not like we were never going to see this affidavit if we didn't see it in a week or two weeks or however. Um, it, it, what happens in a normal criminal investigation is usually they make arrests at the end. Usually if you're, if you're at the point where you're getting search warrants, that means you have probable cause of a crime, and that usually ends in arrest. The agents like to make the arrests uh, and the, do the searches at the end at the same time. But what typically happens is once people are charged – then you turn that information over in discovery, and we find out what's in it because the defense files motions to uh, suppress the evidence and the like. So we eventually learn what's in there. And that being the case, what I thought the judge would do is you know, keep the FBI and the Justice Department on a tight leash and ask them for you know, periodic updates regarding how long, how much longer they figured they would be at the investigation. It's highly unusual, and there's a lot of downside for uh, the Justice Department, uh, not just in this case, but uh, institutionally, uh, to have a situation where a judge might set the precedent of ordering the disclosure of a uh, search warrant affidavit in the middle of an investigation when they're still doing their work. Isn't it the extraordinarily political nature of this, though, that might at least on some level make sense to do something that normally would be almost unthinkable? Well, it, it, the, it makes the motivation to do it understandable. But the thing is, the consequences don't change, and the precedent is a disaster. So, you know, as far as the consequences are concerned, whether you have, you know, a, a case that involves a high level of public interest or not, the fact is if you disclose the affidavit, it's going to expose uh, the informants. And so why do you think the judge is willing to maybe go there? Again, we don't know exactly how this is going to pan out a week from now or beyond, but if you had to guess, why would the judge be dabbling in this kind of precedent set setting that would be, in your mind, harmful to other cases down the line. Yeah, I I don't think he's thinking enough about that. Uh, I think he's motivated in part by what what you just mentioned, which is the, um, you know, the the unusual nature of this case and the high level of of public uh, interest in it. And I'm afraid he's also 
in part reacting to the to the very curious thing in this case where he previously was assigned work in an, in another case involving Donald Trump uh and I believe it's the lawsuit uh, where they're they're trying to hold uh Hillary Clinton liable for uh defamation you know Trump has filed a, a suit against Clinton and he begged out of that case based on conflict of interest that he didn't think he could be fair uh and it's clear from you know what what little we've been able to find out about uh about the judge that you know his political leanings are anti-Trump and and pro-democrat which is that's fine i mean that that stuff gets checked at the door usually uh in judicial proceedings and law enforcement work but if he thought he had he, he felt seriously enough about it that he needed to recuse himself in one case. I don't for the life of me understand why he wouldn't have recused himself yeah. from the search warrant. And I'm afraid that he's trying to bend over backwards to show that he really can be fair by giving the government a hard time now. Yeah, some and of I this is think, definitely not what's going on. It's confounding. Just everything that you just laid out, it doesn't really make sense. Now, it whatever his motivations might be, Andy. It looks like he's at least very much open to the idea of releasing a partially redacted uh, you know, affidavit out there into the public uh, for us to then have more information to talk about as we assess what's happening here. I have been very much an advocate for more transparency given how wild this situation is in you know, a raid of the FBI and the former president's home and – you know, we're getting the familiar cherry-picked leaks and the whole song and dance that we experienced for years with the Russia thing. Uh, if this is going to happen, if we're going to get at least something here with redactions, Molly Hemingway was our guest yesterday on the show. She feels like unless it is just a few very minor redactions, I'm, I'm paraphrasing her her position, but she's generally saying – if this thing is redacted heavily, it could actually be worse than putting out nothing at all. What do you think of that? I don't know. I mean, I, I just think the devil's in the details. We'll have to see what they're willing to do. I, I think there's a lot of um, unintended consequences that could flow out of this guy. I think, for example, the FB, the if the Justice Department really is concerned uh, about avenues of investigation that will be cut off if if this all gets publicized. And that's that's the other angle here. It's not just the protection of the informants. What it could cause them to do is step up the pace. Um, and, we, you know, we could see some uh, interesting activity over the next few days if, uh, you know, if they now feel like they have to tie up loose ends and make a quick decision about whether to bring charges here or not. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if um, – to me, it's not the quantum of what they redact or or disclose. It's it basically is: are they going to protect people's identities, and are, are they going to protect and keep confidential the avenues of investigation that they're planning to pursue? And and that's the important thing. And I can't get myself all whipped up about this because, again. This is a this is a criminal case. We're going to see the affidavit eventually anyway. If they charge people, we'll see it when it's turned over in discovery. And if they don't charge people, then the government won't any longer have an excuse that it's got a pending criminal investigation. And then we'll see it because of Freedom of Information Act 
applications. But this is not a FISA. One way or the other, we're going to get this. All right. And so this actually raises another thought that I've been having, because you said maybe they'll hasten the investigation. Maybe they'll step up certain things or change the timeline or what have you. We have heard through reporting that they're at least saying that they are still in the early stages of whatever this is. And sometimes you'll get little leaks here or there, leaks out of law enforcement or the DA's office, certainly not unheard of. However, that being said, Andy, when we all watched the Russia collusion story metastasize and become this dominant factor in our politics for years, one of the uh, one of the characteristics of that era and on that controversy was just a a heap, a deluge of leaks constantly. And the media would race out with the latest leak. And they were all sort of shaded toward an overall arc and narrative that was always you know, negative for Trump. I think that was the whole point. And then eventually we got to the actual reality, which was there was no collusion. And the whole you know, Manchurian candidate colluding with Russia to steal an election uh, argument and allegation was, was bogus and, and baseless. When you start to see more leaks, right? Where they say, oh, well, we can't disclose things because it's an ongoing investigation and we don't want to give out this affidavit because it could compromise our ongoing investigation. And you know, Merrick Garland comes out and, and talks about how everything's all buttoned up and the integrity of the DOJ and the FBI. And then it's just leak after leak after leak all coming from one side of this thing. And we're not really sure how much we can believe of the leaks because we got burned in many cases with the Russia stuff. I mean, I wonder how much that at least factors into your thinking on what the fair way would be to handle this matter, because it's not like everyone is keeping their powder dry and we'll all find out together. There has been, again, a whole program of leaks that seem to let the public know little tiny snippets that whoever these people are want us to know. And it's not a complete picture. Again, this is not necessarily unusual, but it does seem kind of one-sided and, and probably seems unfair to a lot of people. Yeah, but Guy, uh, you know, I guess two things. Number one, the, the pattern of leaking that you quite correctly summarized there was in the context of FISA, where the people doing the leaking didn't actually think that we'd ever see the underlying affidavits. And yeah, for that's a, a long fair point. time rejected the idea that uh, you know the the steel dossier was the was a prime mover in all of that so they thought they were at liberty to sculpt the story for us here they're not because we're eventually going to get this and for all the people who are saying it's unfair and I'm hardly carrying a brief for president trump here but the judge would not have issued the warrant unless he found the probable cause of those three crimes that are laid out in the warrant Obviously, Trump is presumed innocent, and the Justice Department hasn't charged him yet. But if you if you put out the unredacted warrant, what you're going to have is a criminal case where Trump appears to be guilty of three crimes where he hasn't actually been charged. So his, you know, at this point in time, his presumption of innocence would be undermined. So yeah. you know, I, I understand people don't want to be in the dark, but if you, if you expose this. Before it's time to before the government's ready to formally charge him, and especially if the government ultimately doesn't charge him, that's very prejudicial to him. Totally. And I think that the the charging decision was one that they chose not to make 
certainly with Hillary Clinton when it came to classified materials. And uh, we don't know if there'll be a different standard here or if this is all about something much bigger than just classified information, which is your theory. Um, I guess in the meantime, it's just more speculation here, and the speculation might get more fodder uh, about a week from now if that timeline holds up and if the redactions um, reveal or allow anything to be revealed uh, useful as we move forward. Andy, I want to ask you one more question, totally unrelated, although it does go to a similar theme here, which is the politicizing of the Justice Department. I saw a statement that was put out by DOJ in response to some disturbing uh, threats that have been made against a children's hospital in Massachusetts that is offering uh, what supporters call gender-affirming care uh, for kids who are trans, you know, sex reassignment, whatever you want to call it, hormones. Obviously, this is a cultural flashpoint, uh, a lot of controversy around this. A lot of the, the data is kind of the jury's out, and, and some European countries are actually clawing back on some of the so-called progress on this stuff. Setting aside the politics of it and, and, and the heart of that controversy, it's totally unacceptable to issue violent threats against anyone, uh, including this hospital. So the U.S. attorney and the DOJ put out a blistering statement about those threats. Okay, fine. What I've seen some conservatives point out is that there's a dearth, a lack of any similar indignation in you know public comments or a press release or whatever about a series of actual terrorist attacks against pro-life or anti-abortion uh, you know pregnancy centers, which we've seen across the country. And you know you might have some some knowledge on this or some insight into this, given your background as an assistant U.S. attorney, as a federal prosecutor. Who makes the decision about you know, what gets put out into public? You know, when does the DOJ publicly make its umbrage known? Uh, and, and when does they uh, when do the people in charge decide uh, you know, not to say anything and just conduct an investigation? Because I guess the, the critique here is that the DOJ is signaling publicly that they're very angry about these politically motivated threats over here. And there has been at least allegedly nowhere close to a, a similar series of public pronouncements about bona fide attacks uh, that might be sort of coming from the other end of the political spectrum. Uh, what do you make of that? I think, Guy, that the Justice Department should stay out of the messaging business. Who cares that they're angry and upset? Um, I, I don't think anyone believes them anymore. You know, it's a crime to threaten to, to do harm to someone, especially if you use facilities and interstate commerce like phone lines and, and the mails and the like. So if that is really going on, charge people. Then you don't have to, like, get into this whole, you know, political messaging mess. The cases will speak for themselves. But the Justice Department's not supposed to speak unless it's ready to actually formally go to paper and charge somebody. And, you know, after their history that we've had in the last uh, less than two years, where we the last time we heard that, you know, terrible, dangerous threats were being made. It turned out that, you know, they were upset over uh, parents who were right. uh, quite rightly, in my view, protesting the, you know, the woke indoctrination in the schools. And it turned out that they weren't threats. It, it, this was dissent 
about what was going on in the schools. I don't yep. believe them when they say there's dangerous threats. And if there are dangerous threats, they can charge people. So let's let's see them charge some. Put your you know put your money where your mouth is and file a complaint. Yeah, I, I think what the answer that you just gave underscores why there's a lot of mistrust right now. And I know some people would like to wish away that mistrust or say it's all misguided or, you know, weird fever swamp stuff. It's not. And there's one example after another. I think you just put that very well. We've got to leave it there, though, Andy. We always appreciate your time. Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor Andy McCarthy on The Guy Benson Show. Andy, thanks. Thanks, Guy. Have a great weekend. You too. Back with more after this short break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Well, we occasionally talk about Finland, the nation of Finland on this show, usually because we are referencing the Finnish long drink, our sponsor of the final hour, the happy hour, which is delicious and upcoming just after 5 p.m. Eastern. It's their sort of like their national alcoholic beverage. We've also talked about Finland in the context of them seeking to join NATO, which appears to be well underway. Well, there's quite a controversy in their politics right now. I don't know if you've seen this, the video involving their prime minister partying and dancing with her friends. She's young. She's like my age. And there was a video of her posing and dancing and having a fun time with music and all of that. And there were some allegations that there was drug use at this party. She said, no, I I drank alcohol, probably some long drink, but nothing beyond that. Some of her opponents in the opposition said you should take a drug test. So now she has. There's questions about whether a prime minister should be engaged in that type of thing. Is, is it a good look for someone of that stature in that position? She said, I ran for this position just to be a normal person and have these responsibilities. I think people should just chill out. Let her blow off some steam. It looked like some pretty innocent fun to me. Another hour coming up. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show, our second of three. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, GuyBensonShow.com, our online home you can also catch our podcast right there or elsewhere, wherever you get your podcast. It is free of charge every day on demand. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram, you can send us a follow there if you'd like for some bonus content. Hope you enjoy that. As we get going in our middle hour, Fox News alert. The Dow closing out the week in the red, shedding 292 points today, closing at 33,700 and six. With us now is Trace Gallagher, our colleague, Fox News anchor, chief breaking news correspondent here at Fox. And also this Sunday morning, he'll be hosting Fox News Sunday. You can check your local listings for that on your local Fox station. Then it replays later on the news channel during the day. Trace, it's great to have you here. Guy, great to be here. Thanks for having me. I want to start with the response to a poll that NB, uh, NPR put out, National Public Radio. They asked the American people on the issue of immigration, is there an invasion at the southern border? And I'm asking about this just because it feels like, aside from our network and a few other places, and of course our colleague Bill Malugin, who's also based out there in L.A. with you, who covers the border so consistently, 
a lot of other news outlets aren't really covering the border crisis all that much. And yet when NPR asks the American people, is there an invasion at the southern border? A majority of Americans say yes. Only 19 percent of Americans disagree with that. Even more Democrats agree completely or somewhat more than disagree with the characterization of this border crisis as an invasion. It just kind of feels like there's a disconnect between what's happening, the general perception of the American people and the amount of coverage, at least for now, being devoted to it. I wonder if you agree with that assessment and and just sort of the the canyon here that I'm describing. And if you do, what what's behind it? Well, I think it's fascinating when you look at these numbers, guys, that you nobody's covering it. I mean, CNN and MSNBC, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the major papers, the major uh, network affiliates are not covering the border at all. I mean, if there is some kind of major movement, they'll cover it for a few seconds. But nobody's covering it. And you look at these numbers, and yet there are, you know, 40, like you said, more Democrats, 40 percent are, are saying there is an invasion at the border than are against. So, so they're getting this from somewhere. I mean, somebody believes there's a problem at the border. Republicans, 76 percent. I mean, there is clearly a problem. And you've got a couple of different dynamics going on here. This whole idea of, uh, you know, Greg Abbott, the Texas governor, busing people from Texas and Arizona to D.C. and New York has got those cities just, uh, they don't know what to do. They have no idea what to do. Right. I mean, they're saying you can't do this. I mean, Eric Adams coming out saying you can't do this is the same guy who three years ago said, bring them on. Anybody who wants to come is welcome to come here. These are sanctuary areas, sanctuary Mm -hmm. states, and sanctuary districts, and you think you're complaining because they're sending illegal immigrants? There are two million encounters plus since Joe Biden has been president, and, you know, New York is complaining because 900 migrants have been bused to their city. You know, we had a guy on, Guy, just a short time ago was doing Martha's show, and he said his son was uh, his son was killed or had an overdose of fentanyl back in 2019. Is 16 mm-hmm. years old at the time, mm-hmm. and you know he I said what's the solution to this? And he said the solution is get rid of the 87,000 IRS agents that this new bill is proposing and get 87,000 border patrol agents, and we will save tens of thousands of lives, and not just lives. These are lives of young people, and I think people are finally starting to realize that this is a major problem happening on the border, and it affects everybody. It affects yeah. everybody, and there has to be a way to get these people you know, legally in this country faster maybe, but there has to be a way to shut down that border. And there was, you know, two and a half years ago, there was, and Biden decided he was going to stop it. That's right. They lifted all of those successful policies for the most part, and we're seeing the outcome, the, the consequences of those decisions. Our colleague Bill Malugin tweeting yesterday, quote, the bodies of 18 migrants have been found in Maverick County, Texas, so far this month, averaging one per day. So you've got migrants dying in the dangerous journey to come here, drowning in rivers. There's rampant criminal activity. We had that horrible incident with the the tractor trailer filled with then dead bodies, and they were just abandoned by the cartels. Then the fentanyl issue that you mentioned, 100,000 Americans died. I believe it was last year alone, fentanyl overdoses. They're just like flowing in through the southern border. 
I know a lot of people feel like it's you know, cruel to enforce our laws and enforce the border, and it's you know very compassionate to just be you know a welcoming country. But if you abandon the rule of law, I don't know how you can describe this human suffering and death as anything other than cruel. I mean, that's just my sense of it. And, and even if we're the only ones really covering the issue, Trace, there, I mean, we have great ratings. We're number one. I'm grateful for all of that. And we've got an, a fabulous audience. The audience still does not represent whatever it is, you know, a majority of the country, right? right? A majority of Americans are somehow intuiting that this is happening despite basically the blackout from so much of the media. And you sort of wonder what these numbers might look like if there was even you know, some semblance of accurate r- reporting out there on the issue. Now, that'll be I definitely – please, go ahead. This thing. I, I mean, you know, I started my career covering the border. My first job was in Yuma, Arizona, in television, in market 186, 30-plus years ago. I've been covering wow. this same story for 30-plus years. And for anybody on the left to say that they care about these people, they don't care about these people. If they knew what they went through to get from southern Mexico or Guatemala or Honduras to get through and up through Mexico to the U.S. border and to make it across with the human trafficking and the drugs and, and the rape and the, you know, the things that these people are put through, they would, ne- they would stop. They would build that wall and tell them that America is not because they are facing a perilous journey. And it's 116 degrees right now on the border as we speak, and there are people that are trying to bring their children across, and and people don't seem to care. And that's the whole point of this thing is there has got to be a better way to get more people in legally, but this is not the way to do it. This is not the way to horrifically treat those people trying to, you know, to come north through that journey when, no. you know, it, it is— Extraordinarily. Yeah, you're incentivizing. You're telling them to come and you're telling them to make that journey. And that's exactly what's happening. And and with social media, everybody knows it. Yeah, it's it's inhumane. Uh, It might be done in the name of being welcoming, but it's inhumane. It's dangerous. It's callous uh, and it's wrong. And it's why we talk about it so much here, just at least trying to make a dent in the conspiracy of silence in so much of the rest of the of the news media. Trace, you're going to be anchoring, as I mentioned, Fox News Sunday coming up this Sunday morning. A lot of attention being paid to comments from the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. I addressed this earlier on America Reports on TV. Here's what McConnell said, sort of assessing the state of the midterms in Cut 21. I think there's probably a greater likelihood the House flips than the Senate. Senate races are just different. They're statewide. Candidate quality has a lot to do with the outcome. You know, I think a lot of people are kind of freaking out over what McConnell said. Is he throwing in the towel? Is he admitting that Republicans are going to lose a lot of attention? My take generally, Trace, was I can't really argue with the correctness of the analysis there. I don't think he was saying this thing is over and Republicans are doomed. Some people are interpreting it that way. But whenever someone like McConnell who's a very smart tactician and a very savvy political operator, says something like that that can be interpreted as less than enthusiastic about his own party's chances. Of course, some folks are going to pay attention, especially here inside the Beltway. I wonder if that might come up on the show Sunday. 
Oh, it's going to come up because, you know, Mitch McConnell is also very good at one thing. He's very good at getting ahead of things. So he's trying to tamp down expectations because, quite frankly, the numbers don't look great. I mean, you look at Arizona and Mark Kelly is up, you know, he's up eight points in Arizona. That was going to be a tight race. You know, he's he's gone against Biden on this whole border thing, and Mark Kelly is doing well. You look at the Wisconsin race, and Ron Johnson is not doing as well. I mean, he's still arguably within the margin of error. But, you know, and people talk about the enthusiasm gap and stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, the polls are pretty good these days uh, in these Senate races because they're so local and they're pretty good at getting to the heart of, of why people are upset and what they want. And Ron Johnson being down four points at this point is a big concern. And so you have Mitch McConnell coming out and he's saying, you know, listen, we're going to take the House, which they are. I think the Republicans are going to take the House. The Senate is a big, big question. And it's Sure. It's it's hard to understand how it is that these senators, these Democratic senators, are running ahead of Joe Biden's numbers. And maybe because it's the fact they're running away from Joe Biden. I mean, they're running away from Joe Biden. Even in California, guy, where you're like 40 percent of Californians do not want Joe Biden to run again. You think that's astounding. I mean, these numbers coming out, you're like, Okay, people are people, senators and politicians. The list keeps getting longer and longer. Sixteen, seventeen politicians saying, "You know what? They've been asked about Joe Biden. They're running yeah. away." We have video of of you know some of these these candidates that are running through airports. So they don't have to answer the question of whether. Yeah, they please, no Joe comment. Biden. Don't ask. Don't ask me about the president of the United States, who who's a member of my party. Thank you very much. Got to catch this flight. But yeah, I mean, I think you can run away. You can try to distance yourself if Biden's numbers are what they are. In November, there's a lot of, I I think, runway here. And I think calling this thing a problem for the Republicans already based on recent cycles of polling, I just think it's all premature. But it's understandable why McConnell said what he did. You'll be talking about it on Fox News Sunday. Chris Sununu, governor of New Hampshire. The energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm, will be your guest, plus the power panel. Trace Gallagher will be watching on Sunday. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Guy. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. Enjoyed the conversation with Trace Gallagher on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back on this Friday. So I saw some headlines out of Wisconsin that Milwaukee and their public school system was going to lift the mask mandate and go mask optional based on the CDC COVID level or like threat level assessment, which I guess is moderate or medium. It's meaningless to me. These CDC levels should have nothing to do with mask mandates that don't work regardless. So some people were hailing this as progress. I don't feel like going mask optional for the 2022-23 school year is something that you get any credit for. Enough harm has already been done. And when you look at the actual guidelines in Milwaukee, if the CDC decides that community transmission rates are now at a high level, then the indoor mask mandates come back in Milwaukee schools. It's crazy. So there's no attaboy or better late than never here. This is a bad anti-science, anti-student policy. Hopefully CDC has now kind of cooked the books that It's very unlikely that Milwaukee will get back into high transmission, triggering this terrible policy. But if that were to be the case, I think parents should absolutely fight it tooth and nail. Because as we have learned through a raft of data, 
over the course of years all across the world in small studies, in mass scale experiments, mask mandates do not work. David Leonhardt in The New York Times wrote about this, and it took him a while to finally get there, but at least he did it. And he said, you might like the idea of a mask mandate. Certain masks, high-quality masks, can work for people in reducing transmission, but the mandates, they don't work. And I'd say that's especially true in schools. I think it's wild that we're even debating this on any level anymore. Kids are overwhelmingly safe from covid The masks do not help, and there's a strong argument based on data that for some students, the masks hurt matters and hold them back. So that's Milwaukee. Meanwhile, a new study out of Sweden, a country that was widely criticized for their approach to COVID, like, oh, they're just going to let it rip, and the death and destruction and misery will be unparalleled. And Sweden actually came out overall okay. I know some people will say, well, you look at some of the other Scandinavian countries. Well, just compare Sweden to any number of other places, including in the United States, and look at their approach and look at their outcomes. And I think that they stand up pretty well, especially on this front. The study out of that country shows that there was no learning loss for primary school-aged kids in Sweden. Swedish kids were in school where they should have been all along. And not only did they thrive, they did not suffer the horrible, developmentally stunting, harmful outcomes of school closures. While Swedish kids were in school, basically throughout the entire pandemic, we had in a lot of places around this country, classrooms locked, closed, not open for business. While kids were sitting at home, looking at laptops, looking at screens, iPads, that kind of thing, tablets, and failing miserably in so-called remote or virtual learning. We are just now scratching the surface of what we did to so many millions of children in this country through absolutely foolish COVID-related policies that were all too often dictated by ideologues like Democratic operatives and teachers unions as opposed to actual science. And a lot of scientists who were more interested in the politics and the control went along to their great shame. But areas that actually followed the data did a great service to the kids in their jurisdictions, including in a number of red states, private schools, of course. Florida is probably at the top of the list for all the incoming fire they were taking for doing the right thing, the right call that Governor DeSantis made. Probably the most important decision that he made as governor, at least during this first term, was a huge one and a correct one. And boy, was he pilloried for it. Then you look to Sweden where those kids were in school and the learning loss that will reverberate for years, for the entire lives probably of some of these kids in the United States, that is not a phenomenon that is relevant or present among young kids in Sweden. They got it right. A lot of us got it wrong. There are some people willing to admit it. There are others who never, ever will. And I think it's important to deny those people any kind of power moving forward. The teachers unions and their Democratic allies revealed themselves for what they are, disgracefully, but quite clearly. Voters were well aware of that, cognizant, top of mind, last November in Virginia and also in New Jersey, where I see the teachers union in New Jersey is actually out with a new commercial attacking parents. They've learned nothing, apparently, and lessons won't be learned unless voters 
inflict those lessons on the people who are responsible. Their arrogance is unmitigated. Their hostility is undiminished. And the only way to disempower them is to do it through elections. And I hope parents are still paying attention to this because it was a crucially important issue for years. And we can't just say, "Okay, well, that's over. There has to be some accountability. And speaking of accountability, we will turn our focus back to Afghanistan and the one year anniversary of that chaotic disaster of a withdrawal with a guest that you want to hear from. That's next on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Halfway through the Friday edition of the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast is always free every day. With us now is Jason Church, chairman of a group called Veterans on Duty, a nonprofit advocacy organization committed to fighting for policies that keep America safe. He himself is a veteran and a wounded warrior. And Jason, it's great to have you here. Guy, thanks for having me on the program. It's a pleasure to be here and honestly be able to talk about something that I'll be fine with you. I mean, it's not on the news a whole heck of a lot right now, and that's what's happened in Afghanistan over the past year. Yeah, and I know that at Fox we've been covering it pretty faithfully over the last week or two. I occasionally see a headline here or there in other news organizations and other outlets, but it is certainly not getting the type of attention a year later that it did a year ago. That might make some sense, but I think part of it also is some people, I would argue personally, for political reasons, would prefer that we not think too much about it, not think too hard about it, not raise the issue too prominently because there's an election coming up. Jason, what are your reflections on what happened a year later? Well, I think this is something that we really need to be focusing on because the Biden administration in particular really wants you to forget about what happened in Afghanistan. And when I was talking about that beforehand, I was really referring to the grand scheme of the mainstream media and everything else that's going on because because Biden does not want any focus to be occurring on what went down last year. I mean, he wants you to forget about the bureaucratic incompetence and complete lack of decision-making by every single senior leader in his administration. I mean, to this day, guy, no one has been held accountable. Accountability, even verbally, I mean, it would just mean admitting failure and taking ownership. And that's just something that his administration is refusing to accept. Yeah, it's pretty breathtaking that there's been no accountability for what happened. It's a word that's come up on this show a lot this week across a number of different issues. And Jason, you mentioned there was a lack of decision making at the highest levels of the Biden administration. I think to some extent that's true. I think the counter argument would be, and it's not a defense of them at all, decisions were made, right? They made decisions and they were catastrophically bad ones. And when it became clear that this cataclysm was coming and this slow motion train wreck was already underway weeks and months leading up to the deadline. The decisions did not change. There was no pivot. There was no nimbleness. There was no humility. They just stuck with the big picture decision. Consequences be damned. That's how it looks like, at least from where I sit. Guy, I think you're spot on here. It was obvious that the Biden administration wanted to withdraw from Afghanistan. They had signaled that for months, but 
instead of actually putting a plan in motion that would have allowed for U.S. personnel to get out, whether they be military or State Department or civilian people who are working in Afghanistan. Let's remember here, Guy, this was a country that we had helped build for 20 years, whether it was a good idea or a bad idea. I mean, I don't care. The fact is that we were there for 20 years, and when you see at this point the fact that you want to withdraw becomes a paramount objective. If you're the commander-in-chief, I would hope that you wouldn't just pass the buck off to a few bureaucrats to execute this mission. You know, you need to be hands-on. This is the longest war in American history. Why is the commander-in-chief asleep at the wheel? So when we saw what was going on last year, I think a lot of veterans, myself included, really struggled because we saw a lot of the work that we had put in go completely to waste. I mean, guy, I, I left two legs back there in that country. All right. And I've left friends back there. And I know mm -hmm. countless others who have sacrificed much more than myself, even their life. So to see the commander in chief completely turned a blind eye to it and to then not even say anything about it, not even say anything about it is just disheartening, certainly as an American, but more so as a veteran. Well, hang How on, Jason. He, he did say at the time that everything that went down was an extraordinary success. Those were his words. I mean, would you prefer him to gaslight you and say it's a big success, or would you prefer him to say nothing? Well, you know what? At the end of the day, I'd rather him call it what it is, and it was a disaster. He should take accountability and go out and say it. I mean, inevitably, you need to be able to say what needs to be said. Sometimes being the commander-in-chief is not an easy job. That's why it's a very hard job for, <laughs> quite frankly, anybody to get is because of the difficulty and the honesty required for the job. But it doesn't seem like he has it, because if you were really interested, in my opinion, Guy, in having this nation continue to be a beacon of light or to be something that's inspiring to the people who live within it, you need to be showing that at the top levels of office, the sacrifices of people from all over this country, whether they be in Wisconsin, Washington, California, Florida, Oklahoma, or New York, matter. And that's what he's not doing by not saying anything, Guy. And I think the reason he's not saying anything, and a lot of people in the media are following that lead, uh, it boils down to political considerations. And they know that when Americans get a gut check on what happened in Afghanistan, it does not bode well for the people who are responsible for that meltdown. And therefore, keeping it out of sight, out of mind is better for them politically. They couldn't avoid it last year. What would you say to this, Jason? Because some people might say, of course, it was a big mess. It should have gone a lot better. It wasn't executed well at all. But at least we're out of there. Is there a response in your mind to the fundamental question, are we safer? Is the United States, the homeland safer? Is the world safer now that the United States is completely out of Afghanistan or not? Do you have a strong view on that? Well, look, I think we are less safe, Guy. I mean, we at Vets on Duty have been saying that now for a few weeks. We applauded the airstrike that Mr. Biden authorized to kill al-Qaeda leader uh, al-Zawahiri. But that airstrike does not validate the, the withdrawal. And I would say public reporting indicates Zawahiri was residing in the home of a Haqqani network leader, right. someone who's associated with the Taliban. In Kabul, Afghanistan, I mean, the details of this operation, I'll, I'll be honest, I mean, remind us that al-Qaeda maintains close ties. Some will seek to hold up the airstrike as evidence, um, but I'll be honest with you, 
it just decapitates organizational leadership. Remember, there's always another way for them to grow another leader to take over that organization. Yeah, and he was kind of like at this point reportedly a symbolic leader at that. But, I mean, you're absolutely right, at least on this point, because President Biden said that al-Qaeda was gone from that country. Obviously, that was a gross overstatement, to put it, I think, very politely. But what got us into Afghanistan in the first place was that we were attacked on September 11th by al-Qaeda, which was being harbored, aided and abetted by the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. And here we are a few months or less than a year out from that chaotic Bloodstained withdrawal. And what did we see? What did we experience? Yes, we got Zawahiri. That's great. CIA got him. And kudos to them for staying on that for all these years. But this was a top al-Qaeda leader being harbored knowingly, aided and abetted with a house by the Taliban. It's a very familiar fact pattern. And for those of us who remember 9-11 and lived through it, that's a disturbing thing. Yes. I remember a guy walking down the hall of my seventh grade class looking at a computer or wasn't man, I'm already so I'm already outdated looking at a TV screen hang, hanging up in the middle of a cafeteria and looking and being like, my goodness, I know the, those are the Twin Towers. And why is there a plane flying into them? It was a very traumatic event. I, I remember going into my class and having everything else for the rest of the day be canceled. I mean, that's how dramatic that was. My dad was mobilized afterwards while I was in high school. He stayed stateside, but my dad was a reservist, and he couldn't see my senior year of high school. You know, there were sacrifices all around when this happened, and it led me to go into the service myself. Hmm. So, you know, this is something that the president of the United States needs to be present on. And his absence, certainly ignoring the first anniversary of the takeover by the Taliban, it's – it's a dereliction of duty to some degree, guy. I mean, you know, you need to be going out there and talking about the Do you take it personally? Yeah. Sorry to cut in, but it, I can hear in your voice. Do you take that personally? I mean, I, I think I think a lot of vets take that personally. Vets on Duty exists because of this guy. I mean, there's a reason a lot of people have been going to our website, vetsonduty.org, and signing up and saying, look, we're tired of what the Biden administration is doing, and we're tired of seeing this – downward trajectory towards what it means to serve the United States in uniform. You know, and, and when the president's in taking vacation and not taking any sort of time to give a public appearance on the event, just furthers that sentiment. And we're beginning to see that within our organization. And yeah, I think a lot of veterans around this country do take it personally, Guy. Jason, perhaps relatedly, perhaps relevant or not, there have been headlines recently that I've seen that military recruitment is down and the services are not hitting their goals when it comes to attracting young people to put on the uniform, to what do you attribute that? What are you hearing when you talk to your sources, your colleagues, people in that military community when the issue of recruitment numbers and shortfalls arises? Oh, why would you want to serve in uniform right now when you have Democrats and people in the White House telling you that this country isn't even worth fighting for to begin with? I think that's where the initial problem lies. But the second one lies in what I consider a lowering of the standards within the force. I mean, look, when I was injured in Afghanistan, guy, when I was laying there on the ground, when I was bleeding out, when I was dying, I didn't care who the person, the soldier was that came up to me and saved my life. I didn't care what color skin they have. I didn't care what religion they practice. I didn't care about their sexual orientation. I care that they met the standard guy. I care that they met the warrior standard. And to me, as a rifleman, that meant being able to go into the harshest climate of the world with little food, little water, little medication, and engage the enemies of the United States, fight them, beat them, 
And when I'm injured and laying on the ground, you need to be able to carry my 240-pound body over a mile to a helicopter site. That requires strength. It requires standards. And it requires being able to evaluate whether a person can meet those standards. And when they fall, you're going to have people who are qualified for service not even seeking to serve. Because if I'm laying on the ground and if I'm injured, if I can't trust that person to carry me, if I can't trust that person to have my six, as we say in the service, or have my back, then I may not even want to go in to begin with because that's, that's putting your life recklessly at danger. And given what we've seen over the past few years, there is sometimes a disregard to the life of a service member to a degree that is unacceptable. And I think that's what we're seeing right now, and I think that's why we're seeing lower recruiting numbers. Relatedly, and just a quick follow-up, do you believe that there has been what some have called or categorized as a wokeification of the armed forces, at least to some extent? Yes, I would say if you if you want to say woke, if you want to say lowering the standards, if you want to say trying to implement elements of radical social justice, however you want to spin it, guy, it, it, it's happening in the service. And it's happening because it's the only area where elected officials can, with absolute authority, implement certain social elements onto people within an organization. I mean, remember, people in the military have a completely different legal system than the rest of Americans. There's a completely different process for dealing with issues. There's command authority. There's all of these things. So you can implement very quickly some very radical ideas, and that's why they need to be stamped out right now, and Veterans on Duty will continue to do that. Jason Church, chairman of Veterans on Duty, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show, as we are not losing sight of this issue here. And, Jason, we really appreciate your very candid and powerful responses to some of these questions. Thanks for the work that you're doing, and perhaps we'll talk again soon. Sounds great, Guy. Thanks again for having me on. Jason Church on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back. I want to bring to you two stories from the New York Post and just juxtapose these stories about the politics of New York and the leadership in New York. We will start with this one. In fact, this absolutely falls under Woke Tales. Woke Tales. Fantastic headline from the Post. Death of a salesman in New York after Governor Kathy Hochul signs Salespeople Law. Governor Kathy Hochul, Democrat, signed legislation Thursday replacing the word salesman with salesperson, the latest in a series of moves by Albany toward gender neutral and other woke language. In addition to replacing the word salesman, which a summary of the measure deems antiquated, the new law replaces instances of his or her with their in relevant statutes affecting the real estate industry. Thursday's bill signing is the latest example of New York state government's nomenclature kick. Another bill sponsored by two Democrats in New York, approved by Hochul on Wednesday, removes gendered references to office holders in local legislative bodies like councilmen and other new laws scrap terms like inmate in favor of incarcerated person. Think about the problems facing New Yorkers right now, not just in New York City. And we'll get to another example of that here in a moment, but across the whole state. With rampant inflation, a lot of concern about the economy, 
many Americans worried about fentanyl overdoses. There's a lot of problems right now in the country broadly, which is why the right track, wrong track number nationally is abysmal. And the people running the state of New York are absolutely focused like a laser beam on changing terminology in existing laws to make them more gender neutral. The priorities are just astoundingly stupid. Who actually, aside from hardcore, endlessly aggrieved activists, who is actually offended by the word salesman? Who is unable to do his or her job properly because the term that's used somewhere in the New York code is salesman instead of salesperson? You've got officials begging for reform, for instance, on bail laws, which is a preview of what's coming here in a moment. They can't be bothered with that. They can be bothered with making sure that we don't use the word inmate anymore. It's like you've got the emperor sitting around Nero, Governor Nero, while a lot of things are on fire. Elements of the state and New York City are burning, and she is absolutely dead set on total trivial minutia to satisfy a tiny handful of people. It's an embarrassment. Now, it's interesting that one of the words that they've gotten rid of is inmate because they've also almost gotten rid of the concept of having inmates. Certainly in New York City where people are arrested for serious crimes and then shuttled right back out onto the street without bail on their own recognizance where they repeat offend. The recidivism rate, we've talked about this and ran through some of the numbers, is very disturbing. And the laws in place in New York have incentivized this very dangerous situation where people offend and reoffend and reoffend. And the latest instance, also from the New York Post, headline, sex fiend who nearly killed New York City man with sucker punch, freed without bail. And the video is quite upsetting to watch. A convicted sex offender who allegedly cold-cocked a man on a Bronx street, came up just from behind, wound up and nailed him in the face, leaving him in a coma with brain injuries, was freed without bail on Thursday after getting his attempted murder charges reduced in the totally unprovoked attack. This is the bail reform law in New York that they're not going to touch. They're busy with other things. And weak, pro-criminal prosecution. That's what this is, a combination that has led to a big uptick in crime in New York City. And the mayor of that city is busy fighting with the governor of Texas about the border crisis, totally ignorant of what he's talking about. And the governor of the state is worried to make sure we don't say salesman. I wonder if you might spend more time in prison for saying salesman than you would for punching someone and putting them in a coma. Maybe. I don't know. Things are crazy. Things are crazy in the Empire State right now. The Guy Benson Show continues with our final hour coming up. Janice Dean, a very special treat. I've been looking forward to this interview for weeks. Wait till you hear it. It's next. Five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Hour on this Friday. Happy Friday, one and all. 
Glad you're here. We are almost to the weekend together, just an hour left of the program. Thank you for spending it here with us. GuyBensonShow.com, that's our website. Our podcast is free every day, including bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at GuyBensonShow. And the happy hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, refreshing and delicious. I recommend it, as I have for years. I'm a customer. And if you haven't tried it yet, maybe give it a shot. TheLongDrink.com is their website. They have really exploded across the country, hugely popular, gaining popularity. TheLongDrink.com, always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. And here in our final happy hour of the week, one of the happiest people I know, Janice Dean, senior meteorologist here at Fox News, New York Times bestselling author, most recently of Make Your Own Sunshine, also host of the brand new Janice Dean podcast. And Janice, it's great to have you here. (laughs) Thank you for having me, my friend. So I just have to say a couple things real quick. I want to thank you because I know you're off this week and you are pulling a very special favor for us to join us here on the show, but it is for good reason. And before we get into that specific reason that I have been just chomping at the bit to discuss with you in a public forum, because we've been offline texting so much about it, I just want to tell you a story and have you guess something, because if I recall correctly... From one of our many previous conversations, you were, for a significant period of time, a rock DJ, correct, earlier in your career on the radio? Yes, one of my all-time favorite gigs. It was a wonderful time of my life, so of course I love talking about it. All right, so this is one area of expertise for you, and I am swearing to you in front of everyone, this is absolutely true. So today I've got a flight tonight, and I knew that I wouldn't have time to work out later. I normally work out after the show, but I was going to do it this morning just to get it out of the way. I hopped on the Peloton bike. I selected a new but completely random ride with one of the instructors that I like, and it was classic rock. And I hopped on, and I was liking the playlist, and I was working up a good sweat. I was thinking about today's show. I was thinking about our interview. Janice Dean, would you care to guess— what song appeared on this playlist towards the end and I almost fell off the bike? I I know right now what it was. It was Lola by the Kinks. Hit it, Dan. Janice, I had not heard this song probably in years. And now here we are. Getting ready for this interview, and now we're having it. We're having this conversation. Why? Tell the audience why I was so blown away by that coincidence and why the smile on my face, which people can't see on the radio, but again, I can attest that it's here. It's plastered on the front of my head. Why is it this wide? You know, it's funny you mention that because I was also in Canada last week for my mom's 80th birthday. And Lola came on the radio at least two or three times on the <laughs> wow. way there and back. And so I was telling my kids, this is another sign about our Lola. And Lola is a Bedlington Terrier that we have the blessed opportunity to take care of now as a member of our family. Um, and, you know, that discussion started with you on your radio show uh, several yeah. months ago. During the Westminster Dog Show, or before it, I think. 
So what so, happened was you were going to be covering the dog show for Fox and Friends, and yeah. we were talking about dogs and all the wildness that you were going to be engaged in on that adventure and then the hot dog eating contest, judging, <laughs> and you were like the referee for that. It was a wide-ranging conversation about a bunch of fun nonsense. And at one point you just said in passing something like, we all love our dogs. That is, if not a direct quote, pretty darn close. And then I was curious, you know, I would love to know what kind of dog Janice Dean has, because I'm sure that's a very, very happy dog. So I asked you, what kind of dog do you have? And kind of sheepishly, you're like, well, actually, we don't have one, but the boys want one. and We're thinking about getting one. And I said, oh, I hope I didn't just embarrass her because I didn't want to, like, call her out. That wasn't my intention. And I just immediately, reflexively started proselytizing to you about my dog and his breed, Bedlington Terrier, sweet little Roy. And I described some of the things about the breed, and you seemed at least politely interested. And you said, well, send me some photos when you're in the commercial break. Send a couple photos. And so I did. Just a few minutes later, the segment ended. We went to break, and I went, and you're now experiencing this, to my phone. And when you become a dog owner, almost every photo in your photo reel is now of your dog. So I was able to bring up two or three very recent photographs of Roy, who's very regal, very photogenic, and I sent them off to you, and your response was, oh, period, my, period, goodness. And when I started to think you might actually be super interested and hooked, a couple hours later, you texted me back saying, do you have any more photos of Roy? My boys want more. They're in love. And then fill us in, Janice, on the rest of the story. Because now you have I mean, one. It, it really is sort of a love story that was meant to be. That's how I think of it. And and when you sent me pictures of Roy, and I'll be honest with you, it, we've had a lot of you know grief in our family for the last couple of years. You you know this, or your audience yeah. knows this. Of we've course. had a lot go on in the last couple of years with COVID. We had a lot of loss, and so. To be quite honest with you, the boys have been asking for a dog for a long time now. And I was, we were just scared. We were scared to love something again, to be, you know, frank about it, um, to bring something into our lives that, you know, that we, we just were scared. That's the biggest, you know, block for me is that we were scared to bring something into the family um, because we had suffered so much loss, I guess, is the best way. But then you you're just vulnerable. You're vulnerable. It's like, do I want to bring something else into this? Up. Totally. Yes. Totally. Do I want to open myself up to more love that I could lose at some point? That's basically it, right? And mm-hmm. so when you sent me pictures of Roy and I showed my boys, I'm going to try not to get upset because they just like were like, oh, my gosh, Mom, he's so beautiful. He's such a sweetheart. And so then I thought, okay, well, let me talk to Guy about the dog. And we do have a checklist. Listen, I'm actually very allergic to a lot of pets. I can't have cats in the house. Um, a lot of dogs I'm allergic to. Um, so when you said it's hypoallergenic, um, doesn't shed, that was a big checklist for me. And so then I, we did more research. Then I showed my husband, who was also grew up with dogs, but was you know nervous about bringing a dog into our, our household. And our boys are at a good age now where we know that they can help take care of the dog. And so he started doing his own research on Bedlington Terriers. And that's when I knew that this was getting kind of serious. Like he was, you know, he was very interested in learning about this breed. And then, you know, you, your groomer, your friend, uh, you know, introduced us to a breeder uh, so, named Lori Friesen. Go ahead. You, just you just to over. jump in with this, and it's just, it's amazing how it went from not really sure this is the right time 
to total infatuation. I mean, it was it ramped up very quickly, right? Like if it were a human relationship, you might say, well, like maybe tap the brakes a little bit here. Um, don't propose just yet. But I think once you saw Roy and started doing your research, it just felt right. So you then texted me again, and I was sending you guys so many photos and videos of Roy. I was At this point, I'm like, all right, I'm just totally going to enable the entire situation. Let's fuel it as much as possible. I was taking Roy to get groomed, and our groomer is big in the Bedlington community, if you will, and she knows everyone. Like, she knows it's a little network of yep. people across the country, and if there's a Bedlington around, she knows all about it. It's like its own little world. So, And she's a Fox fan. So I mentioned mm-hmm. you, and she's like, oh, yeah, the – the smiley weather lady. I'm like, yes, yes, that's her. Definitely her. You've got it. Uh, I explained the situation and she said, well, I think that there's a litter coming up in a few months in this state. I think there's only one puppy that I'm aware of, Bedlington, that's not spoken for in the country right now. And I think she is a she and she's in Iowa. And I was like, well, that seems unlikely that Janice will get that exact dog, but maybe down the line here, this would be a woman that would be good to have in touch with Janice. So I put you guys together. <laughs> and then what? And we talked. And so there was a little boy uh, that, that they thought was available. And the little boy was being adopted by another, actually another family in New York and Manhattan, who, by the way, we're seeing tonight. <laughs> so No way. You know, it's like this. Yes, so we're going to meet with um, <laughs> Lola's great. little brother tonight who lives oh. in Manhattan. Anyway, so Laura, I got on the phone with Lori Friesen. She's with the glorious Bedlington Terriers, by the way. She's very proud of her breed. Um, she takes care of this breed. And by the way, this is a this is a very old breed, but also a rare breed. There's a rare gem breed. Um, and she's very proud of the fact that she's been, you know, with this group of Bedlington Terriers for 30 years now. She's bred them. She's also she's shown them. Um, yep. She's also a trainer. So she and they kind of look at people. Has- people might be Googling on their phones real quick. These are the dogs <laughs> that kind should. of look. They look like little lambs. They're like little fluffy sheep. They're the cutest thing. They're an English breed. Go on. Okay, so she, I got on the phone with her, wonderful, we got along right away. She said, Janice, I have to tell you, I've, you know, I've, they, the dogs have all been adopted, but my husband and I were talking this weekend. We were going to keep the little girl because she is very beautiful and she really could be a show dog. But we were talking about it this past weekend, and she already has four other dogs at home that she takes care of. And she said to her husband, if we can find a perfect family for this little girl, then wow. we will give her away. We'll give her up. Oh. And so it was It was one of those moments where Guy it was like a meant-to-be and so, you know, she's here with us now. This is how dedicated she is, uh, a, um, a breeder, that she came to us with Lola, and she's been with us for the last couple of days. This is how, how dedicated to the breed she is. She wants to make sure that we are comfortable, that we love her, that we know what to do. And honestly, she said to us, I love this breed so much that if whatever reason something goes wrong in the next year and you decide, oh, my gosh, I just can't take care of her, I will take her back, no questions asked. Like, that's how um, invested she is in this breed. And I love her. We have gotten so close. And I'll tell you, Lola has made our lives even sunnier, guys. So I feel like you made this moment happen for us. She is, we love her. It was like she walked in the door and it was like, what, we've missed you our whole lives. You know, it's just (laughs) like this meant to be. So I will forever be so grateful to you. Um, 
and 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 just to introduce me to this wonderful new piece of our lives that you know it's going to be with us for a long time. Well, I'm just I'm just so overjoyed. I did not know the detail. I thought Lola was the available girl. I didn't realize oh. that was actually her brother who got adopted mm-hmm. by a New York family and now the siblings are going to hang out in New York together this a weekend. Yes, that it's is, happening tonight. That is the most adorable thing I've ever heard. It is just spectacularly great. And I think the whole – it's a very nice offer saying, you know, within a year if it's not working out, uh, that will not be happening. I think within one minute, Lola was a, a total immediate permanent part of the Dean crew. And the thing is, Janice, I think we all understand, and it's a well-known fact, all dogs go to heaven. And I feel like the Bedlington contingent up there – had something to do with this because it is just Aww. so special. I was telling Roy, I talked to Roy because that's not crazy at all, uh, but I was telling Roy about all of this and that he has a distant cousin who's now in the home of a friend, and they have to hang out at some point as well. And I just, I just cannot tell you how happy this makes me, and Aww. I cannot wait to get inundated with photos and videos and stories about Lola and that new journey together in in this special little love and if there's anything i can do to help beyond what we've already done any questions you might have i've already started grilling you on a couple things crate training and that sort of thing i'd love to be a resource but right now i'm having too much fun i have more curiosities let's continue this conversation right after a very quick break with janice dean on the guy benson show fresh conservative talk guy benson show Janice Dean, our guest on The Guy Benson Show in the happy hour, just got her new puppy. What has been your favorite thing so far? Because the thing is, the photos, when she curls up in the little donut, Roy does the exact same thing. I don't know if anything is cuter ever in history. (laughs) That's really cute. And listen, I have to be honest, she's a really, really good dog. Um, But I will tell you the thing that made me just... Um, I don't know, smile from ear to ear is um, my husband took Lola out for a walk uh, in the neighborhood and she's already met like many of the dogs in the neighborhood. This is a very dog friendly town. And as soon as she knows her house now, it's been a couple of days, she came into the house through the door and then I was in the living room. She saw me and guys, she came right up to me and was like doing that little noise like I'm so happy to see you and it was just I can't even describe the moment except to say that I am so in love with this dog and she's just brought so much joy into our lives I never thought was possible um so I just to be continued you know I I can't wait to continue to share the share her with you and I've already put pictures up on social media so you know and I I'm and everyone has been so lovely um it's it's just really been such a how can you not it's like if you don't I'm sitting here it's like oh here we are talking about our dogs, but I'll just say it. If you don't like this segment, it's because you hate puppies, and shame on you, because this is fantastic radio. As far as I'm concerned, I'm going to put my foot down on that one, but you have to follow. If you don't already, follow Janice Dean on Instagram and on Twitter. You will see Lola. I have also posted a few little hello photos back from Roy, and last question, Janice, quickly. How are your boys with this? Is it everything they were hoping it would be? 
they just, they are just, they say she's the best dog ever. And I will tell you on that, since I've been posting pictures and you posted pictures of Roy, now I'm seeing post pictures of everybody's dog, which I also love. It's yep. like, we need more of this. We need more dogs on social media to, because dogs bring the country together. That's exactly right. It's just a difficult time and has been for a while for so many Americans. And it's so divisive and it's so polarized And dogs really do offer unconditional love. And sometimes they're annoying or a mess and you just don't even care because they just love you so much and you can give that love back. And Roy was crate trained and he did sleep in his crate for a very long time, but eventually he was good enough and mature enough to migrate to the bed. And now it's almost impossible for me to imagine sleeping in the bed at the house without him curled up in that little donut. And it's just making me... So happy just to talk about him and to know that that now, that little spark is with you guys and you have so many years ahead with sweet Lola. What a little baby she is. And I'm just thrilled. And Janice, any small role that I played, it's, it, it is a totally wonderful thing to help make such a wonderful person and family a little bit happier. Congratulations. We love Lola. We're totally obsessed. And we have to do a play date. I know it's a little bit of a drive, but I think it would be worth it. Oh, we will. Maybe we'll have to, you know, bring it to Fox and Friends, right? Roy oh, 100%. I think that is something like it's a date. Let's make it happen. I think that's where it needs to happen. And we're going to start a Bedlington craze in America. I'm just putting that out there. Janice Dean, meteorologist at Fox News, New York Times bestselling author, and now a doggy mama. I'm sure you'll hear all about it on her podcast, the Janice Dean podcast as well. Janice, have a great weekend. A fun little puppy date tonight. Tell me all about it, and we'll talk soon. Love you, my friend. Thank you so much. Right back at you. The Guy Benson Show, very happy hour, continues next. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show on this happy Friday. Thanks so much for being here. Andy McCarthy was our guest earlier in the show. He brought us his latest analysis on the Mar-a-Lago raid and the legal fight surrounding that issue. Here's part of my conversation with Andy McCarthy, former federal prosecutor. It looks like he's at least very much open to the idea of releasing a partially redacted uh, you know, affidavit out there into the public. Uh, for us to then have more information to talk about as we assess what's happening here. I have been very much an advocate for more transparency, given how wild this situation is in a a raid of the FBI and a former president's home. And, you know, we're getting the familiar cherry-picked leaks and the whole song and dance that we experienced for years with the Russia thing. Uh, If this is going to happen, if we're going to get at least something here with redactions. Molly Hemingway was our guest yesterday on the show. She feels like unless it is just a few very minor redactions, I'm, I'm paraphrasing her her position, but she's generally saying if this thing is redacted heavily, it could actually be worse than putting out nothing at all. What do you think of that? I don't know. I mean, I, I just think the devil's in the details. We'll have to see what they're willing to do. I, I think there's a lot of... Um, unintended consequences that could flow out of this guy. I think, for example, the FBI, the if the Justice Department really is concerned 
uh, about avenues of investigation that will be cut off if if this all gets publicized. And that's that's the other angle here. It's not just the protection of the informants. What it could cause them to do is step up the pace. Um, and, we, you know, we could see some uh, interesting activity over the next few days if, uh, you know, if they now feel like they have to tie up loose ends and make a quick decision about whether to bring charges here or not. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if um, – to me it's not the quantum of what they redact or, or disclose. It's, it basically is are they going to protect people's identities and are, are they going to protect and keep confidential the avenues of investigation that they're planning to pursue – and and that's the important thing. And I can't get myself all whipped up about this because again, this is a this is a criminal case. We're going to see the affidavit eventually anyway. If they charge people, we'll see it when it's turned over in discovery. And if they don't charge people, then the government won't any longer have an excuse that it's got a pending criminal investigation. And then we'll see it because of Freedom of Information Act applications. But this is not a FISA. One way or the other, we're going to get this. All right. And so this actually raises another thought that I've been having, because you said maybe they'll hasten the investigation. Maybe they'll step up certain things, change the timeline or what have you. We have heard through reporting that they're at least saying that they are still in the early stages of whatever this is. And sometimes you'll get little leaks here or there, leaks out of law enforcement or the DA's office, certainly not unheard of. However, that being said, Andy, When we all watched the Russia collusion story metastasize and become this dominant factor in our politics for years, one of the uh, one of the characteristics of that era and on that controversy was just a a heap, a deluge of leaks constantly. And the media would race out with the latest leak. And they were all sort of shaded toward an overall arc and narrative that was always you know, negative for Trump. I think that was the whole point. And then eventually we got to the actual reality, which was there was no collusion and the whole you know, Manchurian candidate colluding with Russia to steal an election uh, argument and allegation was, was bogus and, and baseless. When you start to see more – Leaks, right? Where they say, oh, well, we can't disclose things because it's an ongoing investigation, and we don't want to give out this affidavit because it could compromise our ongoing investigation. And you know, Merrick Garland comes out and, and talks about how everything's all buttoned up and the integrity of the DOJ and the FBI. And then it's just leak after leak after leak, all coming from one side of this thing. And we're not really sure how much we can believe of the leaks because we got burned in many cases with the Russia stuff. I mean, I wonder how much that at least factors into your thinking on what the fair way would be to handle this matter. Because it's not like everyone is keeping their powder dry and we'll all find out together. There has been, again, a whole program of leaks that seem to let the public know little tiny snippets that whoever these people are want us to know. And it's not a complete picture Again, this is not necessarily unusual, but it does seem kind of one-sided and, and probably seems unfair to a lot of people. Yeah, but Guy, uh, you know, I guess two things. Number one, the, the pattern of leaking that you quite correctly summarized there was in the context of FISA, where the people doing the leaking didn't actually think that we'd ever see the underlying 
affidavits and yeah, for a long a time rejected the idea that, uh, you know, the, the Steele dossier was the was a prime mover in all of that. So they thought they were at liberty to sculpt the story for us. Here they're not because we're eventually going to get this. And for all the people who are saying it's unfair, and I'm hardly carrying a brief for President Trump here, but the judge would not have issued the warrant unless he found the probable cause of those three crimes that are laid out in the warrant. Obviously, Trump is presumed innocent, and the Justice Department hasn't charged him yet. But if you if you put out the unredacted warrant, what you're going to have is a criminal case where Trump appears to be guilty of three crimes where he hasn't actually been charged. So his, you know, at this point in time, his presumption of innocence would be undermined. So yeah. you know, I, I understand people don't want to be in the dark, but if you, if you expose this. Before it's time to before the government's ready to formally charge him, and especially if the government ultimately doesn't charge him, that's very prejudicial to him. Totally, and I think that the the charging decision was one that they chose not to make. Certainly with Hillary Clinton, when it came to classified materials, and uh, we don't know if there'll be a different standard here, or if this is all about something much bigger than just classified information, which is your theory. Um, I guess in the meantime, it's just more speculation here, and the speculation might get more fodder uh, about a week from now. My discussion with Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Also on our free podcast, the entire show, on demand, start to finish, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And there's bonus Benson on the weekends as well. When we come back, the home stretch. An anniversary of a now mostly obsolete piece of technology familiar to so many of us of a certain age. We will pay tribute to the compact disc right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch. Friday edition. We're almost there together. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Free podcast every day. So I am going to head to the airport here in a matter of minutes. Flying on a jet plane. I'm on the night flight. Across the Atlantic, I'll be in Europe for the next couple of weeks. We'll be doing the show, God willing, from London, Monday and Tuesday. We've done the program from the London Bureau of Fox News before, and I'm excited to host from there again and then some other cool stuff coming up elsewhere, and then some other cool stuff on the agenda after London that we will talk about a little bit next week. I know Christine is very eager to talk about it right now. Christine, do you have any questions about my journey to London? I'm willing to talk about that, but we've got to save some of the other stuff for next week. Well, I sure do, Guy. Do you think you'll have a spot of tea when you're over across the pond? Okay, let's move on to our next topic here. I should have known better. I should have known better than to have let her ask a question. And she threatened. She, In, in her defense, she threatened to do the British accent earlier. I rejected the idea, and then I just cracked the door open a little bit, and she just kicked it right down, didn't she? She's been practicing in the studio for the past, like, 15 minutes. Ugh. And the answer is, yes, I'll have some tea when I'm over there. All right. As I teased before the break, we just all together commemorated the 40th anniversary of CDs. 
And for people under a certain age, these are just hilariously old, like dust collectors, basically. Wyatt is off today. Otherwise, we'd ask him about this. I think we've talked about CDs with him before. And at the early end of his childhood, he had some CDs. He's still not quite that young. But for Zoomers and kids who are in like college and high school now, it's just not a thing. But if you're my age, I would say what? Probably Xers through young millennials or maybe older Zoomers. CDs was like a huge part of your music enjoyment experience growing up. And this has been a very musically oriented happy hour, actually, because we played Lola for Janice Dean in that interview. Now we're going to play some other songs coming up here because when I saw the story, it was USA Today, happy 40th birthday to the CD. And Christine has noted this is her own note on the rundown that she put together that CDs are, in fact, younger than she is. Cookie is older than CDs. She insisted that I mention that. So this is not me poking fun at her age. I would never do such a thing, ever, ever. But we decided to go around the horn, and we talked about CDs in the past, but we had not done this, which is to reveal the first CD that we ever bought by just playing the hit song from the album. So I've admitted this before on the air. We have played this song before on the air in a similar context. I'm not ashamed Circa 1994, I had moved back to the U.S. from overseas. This song was extremely popular. So I went out and I asked my parents and we went to Tower Records. And I bought this from Real McCoy. Listen. That's just a bop. I'm sorry. I apologize for nothing. Another Night by Real McCoy is a good song. Now, they do have the weird part, as a lot of songs from that genre did back in that era, where the weird guy starts talking. It's not even really rap. He just speaks words with a vague accent. Maybe not a huge fan of that element of the song. But that is a good song, Christine. I hear you laughing at me. I talk, talk, I talk to you in the (laughs) night, in the dream of love so true. That's it. That's it. It's like he's in the room, Christine. Uh, Very good. That's a good song, and I am pleased with that choice, and I'm sure some people will ridicule it. I mean, it's not like a super cool first CD to have gotten where I can be like, oh, yeah, look at this masterpiece, this classic hit, but I stand by it. All right, Christine. You're up. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what I'm about to hear. I don't know if I'll even know the song. I have a suspicion of what the first artist would be. That little Christine would go out and buy a CD, but I'm not sure if you were a fan yet of his music. So I'll see if I'm right. I think it's Phil Collins, but let's listen together. Is that 
the chorus of the song, the most yes. famous song on the CD? Yes. You don't know that song, Man on the Moon? It's by R.E.M. It's vaguely familiar. I've heard it before, but I would not have gotten that. I'm shocked. Like, that's a really popular song. I even love that one. What year would that have been? 92. 1992. Okay. And then when did your love for Phil Collins blossom? Was it later? So my love for Phil Collins was all already happening. But what happened was I had so many of the Phil Collins cassette tapes that when I said I want, my parents bought me, you know, my first mini, remember it was like a mini stereo you got. So it had like two cassettes, yes. your CD player. A boom box. It wasn't a boom box because it had two separate speakers. I remember. Oh, I, see, to me, that's a boom box and you can, you can either have the speakers on either side of it like clipped in or you can take them off. That was what I remember at least. So the boom box, I think was, um, you could travel with it, right? You could move it around. Yes. This was bigger. This You weren't moving okay. around with this. But my mom, I remember when we went to buy it for my birthday, and she said, you have enough Phil Collins. Like, is that really what the kids are listening to? Like, maybe we should <laughs> no. find something else. <laughs> the kids were not listening to that, but they should have been because Phil Collins is really good. And cassette tapes were what everyone had before CDs. But the CD is like they were sleek. They were cool looking. You had those disc men that became a thing so it's a different ball game so rem is your first album that you bought on cd that was my first album i bought on cd don't forget we're getting into almost grunge time now 1993 Mm -hmm. 94 i remember i had some like like kennedyville this was the era of kennedy on mtv that you're talking about one thousand percent my my best friend um, who I went to Backstreet Boys with, still cannot believe that I know Kennedy. Like, that is, like, one of her favorite people ever. Like, she was obsessed, I mean, obsessed same. with Kennedy. She, I just didn't know her from her MTV days. I've only known her in Fox World, but she's got this other whole universe that is just, it's amazing to hear those stories. All right, Dan, remind me, Dan, you're roughly my age, right? Within a year or two, I think. Yes, I'm 34, so I was born in 1988. So I was a little later to the CD train mm. than you guys. Um, okay, we have cassettes so and all that. Two years younger than I am might make my guess of yours wrong. Because if you were exactly my age, a lot of guys my age, I think their answer would be one band, one album, and that was going to be my guess for you, but... Two years is a long time in, you know, music, right? Things come yeah. and go, and hot songs aren't as hot anymore. So my guess was going to be Green Day, Dookie, <laughs> but maybe I'm wrong. Let's listen to what the real answer is. So that's no doubt, isn't it? Absolutely. My first crush, oh. Gwen Stefani. She's got like that sort of punk cred as well. She's just cool. Sorry, what year was that? 1995. 95. All right. Yeah. Then, wow, that song is older than I realized. I'm just glad that I got the band right and I did not embarrass myself and go over for 2 with you guys. <laughs> that is a good one. Was Green Day, Green Day was probably too much like 93, 94. I think Dookie was like 92, maybe. Yeah, Fact check, Dookie was February 1st, 1994. So right perfectly, like sitting right there for me, and I went with Real McCoy, 
I think Real Doubt is a very strong contribution to this, Dan. So congratulations. No doubt. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's better than trying to do a British accent. I'll give you that. Uh, And we got to go. I got to catch my flight over to the UK. Christine will be staying very much here in the United States of America. No more accents, Christine. You can ask me more questions on Monday. Doing the show from the Fox News London Bureau. I'm really looking forward to that. Have a great weekend out there. Enjoy Bonus Benson. We'll talk to you next week on The Guy Benson Show. Cheerio. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.